and welcome to episode 1028 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Vandenberg of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass. Hello. Hi. Going to do a team preview episode, so later in this episode we'll be talking to Nick Picoro about the Diamondbacks. Sooner than that, we'll be talking to Pedro Mora about the Angels. A couple things before we get there. One, they're coming for Carter Capps, our boy, who we have enjoyed watching strike out half the batters he faces, and you chronicled what seemed to be an evolution of his delivery early in spring training. Maybe it was just something he was testing out in one of his first throwing sessions of the spring. Whatever it was, it had more hops than he has had in the past, <laughs> and Evidently, that made Major League Baseball nervous because they quickly got a rule on the bench to limit his hops, and I think probably makes sense. I always liked that Carter Caps existed, but I didn't really want more Carter Capses to come along. We have enough strikeouts in the game already. It was fun while one guy or maybe two guys were doing it, but that was probably as many guys as I ever wanted to do it. So now Caps has to stick to his old delivery and in theory should be okay. Although you wrote about this last week and you noted that he maybe doesn't always necessarily stick to that delivery or it's hard to tell if he really fits the letter of the new law. So there could be some gamesmanship that goes on if people really want to hold him to that. Yeah, I feel like there's a a potential vulnerability here. This is, of course, better with visuals. So I'm just going to put the onus on Ben, I guess, to link to a video of Caps' slow motion delivery in the, the Facebook group for anyone who wants to see it, but also video of Caps's everywhere his spring training pitches have gone viral anyhow the whole idea is uh at when caps first started spring training he had two hops in his delivery which is patently absurd because you could look at it and if that was allowed then you could just conceivably hop all the way and basically hand the ball <laughs> to the catcher uh and even now you could argue that based on the new rule you could hop while dragging your back foot all the way to <laughs> as long as you don't reset that foot in theory If you tried that once, then baseball would be like, we have a problem. And then, uh, (laughs) so I don't know what you do from there. Also, don't you, there's the downside to throwing the ball to the catcher from five feet away, but that's, we didn't need to go into that. (laughs) Uh, so right now, the understanding based on Carter Caps' delivery, and I guess Jordan Molden, but mostly Caps, is that he has to drag his back foot in the dirt when he's hopping, hopping, he's hopping off the mound. Can we not? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so they the way that they've made this legal which is absurd but still their interpretation is that as long as he drags his back foot just the slightest man drags his back toe in the dirt then technically he's never resetting his foot he's not coming off the man so as long as he does that then he's fine if you watch video if you look at it closely there we don't have video that's in sufficiently high resolution to be able to tell if there is a drag line but the evidence would be that there's a drag line if you drag your foot mm-hmm. in the dirt then there's going to be evidence of that having happened. It's like a fossil, except it's new. So (laughs) if you read any interview about Caps with the Padres, which is most of the articles I think about the Padres right now, certainly from Fangraphs' point of view, that they talk about how they're working on him dragging his back foot and how that's he's just concentrating on getting making sure his foot drags. There's a the Red Sox protested Caps a little bit last, I think, July, maybe June, two Julys ago, I guess that was. And John Farrell said that Baseball indicated to them that there was a very faint drag line. Therefore, Caps is not doing anything wrong, sort of. It still (laughs) seems like it's been easy enough to ignore Caps because he was a Marlin and then he wasn't pitching and now he's on the Padres. So like like his games don't matter. But let's say (laughs) conceivably he's healthy, he's pitching well, he gets traded because the Padres don't need him and other teams do. You can easily imagine Caps in a very important situation in a very important game and then he's throwing like Carter Caps. And you think this has gone viral so far. Just imagine Carter Caps in a playoff race or even in the playoffs the, he doesn't have that national exposure yet and he is so weird he his effective velocity is the highest in the game he basically throws the ball leaves caps's hand gets to the catcher faster than Aroldis Chapman's fastball that's a mm-hmm. big deal that is the kind of thing that everyone can appreciate understand and in the case of caps hate because just on a gut level you look at him and you think well if you're facing him no you shouldn't be able to do that because it's right. so weird. Just as a little fun fact, you talk about how hard his fastball is to hit. When he threw a breaking ball two years ago, he threw 157 breaking balls. Batters swung at 84 of them. 
Betters missed 64 of them. The contact rate on his breaking ball was 24%. (laughs) Like the best sliders in the game have contact rates of like 50%. Yeah. So not only is Caps throwing just impossible fastballs to hit, but when he throws a breaking ball, people just screw themselves into the ground. It's completely his pitching is unfair because it's so good. He gets this little advantage and it seems like you could challenge Caps in a very important spot. Because if you don't see a drag line, or if you, I don't know if this is subject to replay review, it probably is not, but the, the least you could check for a drag line. And if there's a runner on third and you don't see a drag line, well, that's a buck. And then that runner scores. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a big deal. But Caps could counter that then by just going out and creating an artificial drag line if you wanted to, because you can't <laughs> prove a drag line for every single pitch. Right. So this is not going to go away, even though there have been rules that say his delivery is fine. This is going to come up again and again and again, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Makes Carter Caps even more interesting, which we didn't think was possible. You wanted to bring up something else quickly? Yeah, real quick. Although I should should say I was chasing a lead. I saw a completely unverified rumor on Twitter about Caps that uh, this guy in the giant system, Nolan Riggs, who stands six foot eight, had tried to uh, copy Carter Caps' delivery for a bit last <laughs> no. year. And uh-huh. uh, and the Twitter account indicated also he was very successful while he was doing that. And I thought, it's starting. But then I reached yeah. out to the Salem-Kaiser Volcanoes representatives, and they said, oh, that would be the first we've ever heard of it. So still <laughs> no confirmed cases of Carter Caps' mimicry, but it, <laughs> I believe it's only a matter of time. Anyway, just for a quick other topic that is actually of some grave importance, but we're just going <laughs> to skip right by it. Uh, Noah Syndergaard, following in the footsteps of Jacob deGrom, did not sign or has not signed, I guess, his contract renewal that the Mets have given him. Uh, mm-hmm. Syndergaard feels like it's not enough of a raise for how good of a pitcher he is. Guess what? It's not, because that's the way that it works when you're are a pre-arb player but it's interesting to look at this and for Syndergaard it's basically a uh, a protest over how little the younger players get paid relative to what they do but then there was also a recent article I guess everywhere about veteran (laughs) players and how they feel like they're not getting enough of a shot because younger players are everywhere on every roster and they're so much cheaper and veteran players are easier to avoid because they cost their market value Mm -hmm. so it seems like there is a fairly easy way to go about fixing this uh, for for everyone where you just make young players cost more and then that makes them a little less appealing and then you reconsider having veterans assigning them as free agents where it feels like there is momentum toward I think they've already raised the uh, the minimum well they constantly raise the minimum salary yeah. but if you raise the minimum salary more to the point where you anchor yourself to like a a seven figure minimum maybe if you have a rookie who's costing a million dollars plus then that would inevitably shift teams away from only collecting young players and it would make older players more appealing because their salary demands would not be so extraordinary relative to youth but i feel like i've been talking for the last five minutes so hi ben (laughs) hi well yeah these are age-old concerns probably right i mean you can probably go back to any year in baseball history and find veterans talking about how they're getting cheated out of jobs or there are too many young guys taking jobs that's a a concern that older players have always had because they are constantly getting forced out by younger players as they themselves once forced out younger players and it's just the circle of baseball life and that's always going to be the case and you can probably go back to just about any year and find younger players complaining about how much they're making too relative to older players maybe those differences are greater now just because players do make so much money that The differences that are sort of enforced by the arbitration system and free agency are clearer and bigger and everyone's aware of them. And yeah, I mean, it does seem like something that could change, should change at some point. It is unfair, except in the sense that it was collectively bargained and it's still not fair necessarily if you're a young player who came into this league and found this existing situation and had no part of creating it and you can't get out of it and you're just locked into a certain amount of money even though you are one of the most productive players in baseball and one of the best deals in baseball and 
Yes, it's frustrating for a pitcher like Syndergaard. I mean, Syndergaard is like at the top of everyone's worry list as far as guys who are going to get hurt just because he throws so incredibly hard and his stuff is so amazing that it seems like based on what we know about velocity adding risk for arm injuries, he would be a guy you have to worry about. And so obviously everyone hopes that doesn't happen, but he is still vulnerable to that kind of outcome where he could get hurt and end up not making a whole lot of money in his career, even though he is one of the best pitchers in baseball right now. So definitely understand the fears and the concerns and the frustrations, but it's something that you're going to have to get the older players who make up a lot of the players association and who stand to make the most money from free agency to take care of the younger guys and figure out some way for them to get a bigger piece of the pie too. So hard to say exactly when or how that will change, but the imbalance does seem to be growing. So maybe it's something players will be more interested in doing something about in the next round of collective bargaining agreement if you have more strife and you have more guys muttering about how much less they're making than other players who aren't as good as they are. That seems like it's a situation that you probably wouldn't want to keep around. And then you'd still never pay minor league baseball players anything. (laughs) No, of course not. All right. So that does it for the opening banter. We will be back in a second with Pedro Mora. All right, we're back. We're talking about the Angels with Pedro Mora, who is the Angels beat writer for the LA Times and half of the LA Times baseball podcast, Sports Writers Blues, the more correct half, I would say, although I I love the other half too. Pedro, hello. Hi, thanks for inviting me on. So I guess we should start with a couple of the pitchers who are coming back from injuries and made their spring debuts this weekend. Tyler Skaggs, Garrett Richards, how did they look and where are they in their recovery process? Well, they're both uh, ostensibly fine. They both pitched their scheduled days, but Tyler Skaggs had some some concerning velocity readings he didn't finish an inning, and in his, his after like 15 pitchers or so, his, his fastball velocity toned down to like 85 to 88 or 86 to 88 from a couple scouts who were in attendance. So uh, he he explained that as he was trying to guide the fastball into the zone. He still missed. Uh, he walked four guys in, in a span of six batters and, and walked in a run. But uh, you know, you when you see that kind of velocity drop, I mean, he started the inning about 90, and then he dropped down to 86. Not exactly uh, ideal, mm-hmm. I, I guess, for your first spring start, especially since in in September, you know, he missed about 20 days for scheduled starts with the with some, I think it was diagnosed as some sort of tightness or tendonitis somewhere in his arm. Basically, there was he was having complications returning from Tommy John surgery, which happened in August of 2014. He had a very long recovery process, and mm-hmm. that's, it's, uh, it's still kind of ongoing, I guess you could say. Uh, with Garrett Richards, he just threw today, uh, Sunday, when, when I'm talking to you in uh, in Tempe, and he looked uh, pretty good. Threw hard. He threw like he he said afterward that he threw at 85 percent, but uh, of his effort. But his manager said he threw at 100 percent, and that's what I thought too. I mean, it seemed like he was he was you know I saw him in instructional league when he first made his return from. Uh, from the stem cell injection that he received to combat Tommy John surgery, and uh, he was not throwing this intensely, mm-hmm. so it seems like he's uh, he's really amping it up. Uh, I expect him to be the opening day starter. You know, of course, the concern with him is that you just don't know what kind of constraints he's going to have because there hasn't been a pitcher uh, who returned from stem cell injections. I don't uh, I don't want to just sidestep the fact that Matt Shoemaker had brain surgery, but my assumption is that Matt Shoemaker is going to be able to pitch and pitch like Matt Shoemaker. Ricky Nolasco should be fine. You were just asked about Skaggs and Richards. Maybe the most fascinating out of all of them to me is what's going on with Alex Meyer. Alex Meyer has changed his mechanics, not so much for performance reasons, but more for trying to keep his shoulder healthy. I haven't been able to see what his new delivery looks like because spring training coverage is terrible, but there's sort of an open competition for the fifth spot, at least what it be presently the fifth spot in the Angels rotation. And what have you seen out of Alex Meyer? Because he has sort of that that big 
untapped upside. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that you mentioned that you were searching for his video the other day. <laughs> I was, uh, it doesn't really feel like uh, that many people pay a lot of attention to him. But yeah, I mean, he has obviously a ton of potential. I mean, people who've been around this game for a while have thought of him as a potential, you know, mid middle rotation starter for like a half decade now. Uh, the, the delivery change really isn't as pronounced as it, as it maybe sounded to you, I'm guessing. It's just like keeping his essentially his arms closer together within the delivery, mm -hmm. I guess I would say. It doesn't really look uh, all that different, honestly. Okay. But uh, the idea is to basically control uh, his pitches better because he because of how lanky he is, how gangly, it leads to a lot of wildness. I don't think he's ever had like a an extended period where his walk rate's below like three and a half or nine or anything like that, maybe even four. Uh, in his in his professional career, so that's it, that's hard to have success. A lot of people still think, you know, for a couple of years now. I mean, the Twins openly said that they thought he was a reliever. Uh, a lot of scouts do too. The Angels seem to think that they can. He has a chance to still start. So he's 27 years old. This is kind of a make or break season. Mm -hmm. And about a year ago, it seems like we, people were talking about the Angels organization as the worst they'd ever seen, the worst farm system ever. And now among the people who rank those things, it's not even the worst in Major League Baseball currently. It's not good, but it has come up from historically terrible to not the worst right now, which is progress. How did they get to that point? Have they been sort of making quiet moves that have built up the organization or is it more a product of other teams sinking at the same time how has that ranking come about yeah as far as i know it's not uh it's not a matter of the, the system you know taking a huge step up i think it's just an incremental improvement the kind that you would expect from a year spent devoted to, to development right the player development and i think that a couple teams have just sunk essentially that's mm -hmm. that's the way i've interpreted it I, I i would still i still understand that they're in the top the bottom five across the game according to most people so mm -hmm. uh it's on the upswing you could say but it's it's certainly not a strength of the organization. You know, they took a um, they took a kind of a, a low ceiling player in the first round last year, a first baseman who's like five foot ten and uh, hits like not really for power. So it's uh, his name is Matt Thice, and I think that you know they're talking about him in the big leagues as of like 2018. So it's a uh, I guess maybe they they went for sure things rather than uh, long term potential, which is probably a smart choice when you need to. Uh, to get a little bit better than the 30th best farm system in baseball. <laughs> this might be more of a, a two or three part question, I guess. But speaking about the farm system, even when you don't have a highly ranked farm system, one of the things, one of the types of p players that seem to come out of even mediocre farm systems are sudden impact relievers. And it seems to me like the Angels, more than maybe any other contender, potential contender, could use some of those breakthrough young relievers, like I guess the Mariners pulled Edwin Diaz out of their system somehow, and he saved the bullpen. And the Angels seem to me like they could very badly use maybe four of those. So what is the outlook for the Angels bullpen, I guess, both in the majors and the minors, because this is a team that intends to try to make the playoffs this year. And right now they have Cam Bedrosian. Yeah. Well, they actually have a uh, they have a kind of an Edwin Diaz like person who's from your from your town, Jeff. Um, uh -oh. His name is his name is Keenan Middleton. Keenan um, Middleton. All right, I was hoping we would get into Keenan Middleton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His name is Keenan Middleton. He's uh he was a 2013 draft pick, I think, or 2014. I forget the years. He was a, a junior college basketball player primarily, um, but he started playing and he threw hard and uh, he got drafted. He was going to go to Washington State and play basketball actually, but uh, and then he started for two years, basically had no success. Uh, and then last year, I'm planning on writing him on him later in the spring, but. Whatever, I'll talk about him now. Uh, he uh, he last year in spring he said mid spring he was messing around with the delivery before a before a minor league game in at Sloan Park the the Cubs facility and uh, he decided to do the Cueto. I don't know how you would describe that the left the left leg cocking back. Yeah, which Cueto I guess the 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 left leg cocking back. I think of it as the Duan or Sanchez uh, if you were a fan of the <laughs> mid two thousands uh, mediocre relievers. But um, he he did that and he said that his velo ticked up two miles an hour that day. There's no real way to check that, but that's that's what he said, and uh, and then it, he, that was also like a week after he converted to being a reliever, so that probably plays a role in it. And then he he basically dominated every three three levels of the minor leagues last year. You know, reached 102 miles an hour in a game in AAA in in August, I think Damn. in August, and uh, and now he's kind of a guy in spring training. He said that it's his goal to make the make the opening day roster. Probably not going to happen, but totally a possibility to be up in May or something like that. So that's kind of a that's the closest thing they got to Edwin Diaz. <laughs> Outside of him, I do not see a lot of upside in the bullpen. They have a guy named Mike Marin who I think is pretty good, and I know some scouts who like him too, but uh, he's had some, what would you call it? 
he has not always had success in the major leagues. He had a really bad like 10-day <laughs> stretch a year ago where he uh, he basically gave up homers in every big situation that he entered the game in, and he entered the game in like four big situations. So that I think that like tripled his ERA from like 1.8, like almost six or something like that. Uh, and then he he was demoted to the minor leagues, came back, and was just okay. He has he has one really good pitch, but scouts refer to it as a trick pitch. It's like a it's like a drop off the table change up. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fastball was just average. And, uh, you know, he's, he's been in the big leagues for a while now, but it just hasn't established himself. I guess that's maybe the, the number two guy I would say that could that could break out uh, this year. I can't really think of other guys beyond those two. Uh, Bedrosian is obviously a you know, major league reliever in terms of his stuff. Hasn't really put it together outside of 50 innings last year, though. Mm-hmm. Jeff, were you planning to write about the Angels' unbeaten streak in spring training, which I guess is now over? <laughs> <laughs> I was, I had an interest in doing. I don't know. I mean, there's nothing else to write about, first of all. But it's it's interesting because what what did it get up to? 18? Yeah, 19? it got up to 18 games. Yeah, that's, so, <laughs> I mean, just mathematically, that's unbelievable. Does yeah. that? Because we answered a listener email last week where someone said, "Well, if a eccentric billionaire wanted to build a team that just won spring training games only, how would you do that?" And we were talking about how you probably could win. I don't know, eighty, ninety percent of your spring training games at least early on if you just started training earlier so that your spring training <laughs> came before other teams' spring training, or you just played all your starters instead of the rookies and everything. I assume the Angels did neither of those things and this was just a complete fluke or do they take spring training results more seriously than other teams might? Classic social move. <laughs> I'm so confused about this and I'm really glad you guys brought this up because I feel like in, in recent days I basically it's, it's been the, the thing I've talked about the most uh, and no one has, has like understood why it's been interesting to me. Um, I think it's incredible. Like the the odds of an 18 game unbeaten streak in 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 the Cactus League, I think, are are far slimmer than the odds of an 18 game uh, winning streak in the major leagues because it's essentially random who's playing in the games, right? I mean, there, there's no you have no way of knowing who how talented the players are. I mean, like a good major league team, you know, is is expected to win 65 percent of their games, but I don't think any any team in spring training is expected to win 65 percent of their games because. It's just a, you know, it's a bunch of class A players in there by the ninth inning in early spring. I think it's, I think it's absolutely amazing. And, uh, but I mean, I brought it up to the manager after like game 15 and he had no idea. So, uh, <laughs> um, there's that, I guess is probably the biggest way to, 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 to refute the, the idea that it has any meaning, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So. And it's like, it's a, like a mediocre major league team that has a bad farm system. And that's the team that ripped off this undefeated streak. It's incredible. It's, oh, it, it, it gets it's, better. It's amazing. We talk about it. Yeah. It, it is, it is truly confounding. I was, what I was really wondering was at what point would it become like a national story? Let's say they won every game <laughs> in the Cactus League this year. And they and they opened you know 2018 with a 39 game Cactus League unbeaten streak. Do you think people would be like? Do you think the stadium would be sold out? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it'd probably get to a point, right? Eventually, no, except it seems I, no. I think the answer no, is no. Never. <laughs> I don't. I don't think. I don't think anyone. I don't know how you could possibly get. I mean, I'm thinking about writing an article about this, and I know nobody's going to give a shit. You can't get people. There's no way a stadium would sell out because you think I'm going to see whoever these faceless angels replacements are be these faceless Chicago White Sox replacements. I just can't because nobody nobody goes to a game to see a team win in spring training. And it's so it's not like it's not the goal. Everyone's trying to win. It's a competitive environment. But like no one. No, no. I think you're 100, 100 minimum before anybody actually cares like beyond beyond people who listen to this i guess we'll never know because the streak was snapped no we'll know in three or four (laughs) spring trainings from now (laughs) (laughs) so we just sort of skipped over shoemaker before but he's coming back obviously off of the skull fracture how is he protecting himself is he going to be a trailblazer in any way in in terms of pitchers wearing headgear on the mound which in the past some pitchers have been interested in doing but they've never found the right thing that they were comfortable with or that they thought didn't look silly no uh he's deciding between two different items right now um one of them is uh it's called safe it's by it's produced by safer sports technology and colin McHugh actually wears it in games right now he's been doing it for the last few seasons kind of quietly hmm. i think it's a high school friend of his who who created the product it's just a little carbon fiber piece that you slide into the to, to the right side of your head to basically cover your temple. Uh-huh. And Shoemaker tried that for his first uh, his first live BP session, his live batting practice session. Oh, uh, while I'm on here, can I refer to can I answer a question about live BP that Jeff was asking? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so it is it is curious, I get it, but I think that the number one thing is just is just laziness because some pitchers want it and some pitchers don't. And there's really no one to take the machine to take that, you know, big piece of metal all the way off the field and then all the way back on because these live BP sessions take 6 or so minutes and then it's on to the next guy. And I don't think anyone's really interested in taking it on and off because pitchers get to pick whether they have the, the screen or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, some guys do and some guys don't. I'd say it's almost 50-50. And so that is essentially the explanation. It's just like no one wants to do it every five minutes. Yeah, it's laziness. All right. I knew it was going to be some form of laziness. <laughs> okay, wait. So what was I talking about? Oh, Shoemaker. Uh, <laughs> so he, the other piece is actually produced by Cliff Floyd. Uh, he, it, it's, uh, I forget the brand name, but if you search Cliff Floyd headgear online, it's, uh, it's there. And uh, it's, it's pretty similar, I guess, slightly different, maybe different material. But uh, he, he's probably going to wear something. At first, in the offseason, he was leaning towards not. And he told people that he wasn't going to, but I, I think now he will. Uh, if you can, basically, the idea is th- these things are almost not noticeable, and it's worth it because it, you know, at this point, if he gets hit again, it's uh, like his life would be seriously threatened. So if he if he can avoid that, that'd be wonderful. Mm-hmm. He's totally fine too. That's that's the thing that's uh, amazing. I mean, he's uh, there's essentially it's not like at first I was wondering if the if the team would be trying to act like it was it was all normal and everything like that, but. He has been, it's really hard to overstate like how normal <laughs> it feels, except for the fact that when he's pitching, even in, you know, on the backfields and stuff like that, you can see this scar from his, from his hat. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's really something. We should probably talk about Mike Trout a little bit. So let's do, uh, let's just do one quick. So in, in 2015, Mike Trout, just going off Fangraphs wins above replacement. Mike Trout's war was nine. The rest of the Angels position players, 8.8. Last year, Mike Trout's war, 9.4. The rest of the Angels position players, 12.2. So two years ago, basically tied. Last year, the rest of the team position players worth three more wins. Do you think the rest of the Angels position players this year will uh, accumulate a greater war than Mike Trout himself? And if so, by how much? Um, yeah, this is actually something that I monitor. Uh, and <laughs> the answer is it, this year, it will. they will. Uh, they almost certainly will. If they don't, the team is in serious trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the idea with the, the one thing Billy Upler did certainly focus on in the offseason is position player depth. And, you know, with they have four legitimate big league outfielders, whereas in most years they've had two in recent seasons. So that'll help. I mean, Ben Revere is, is their fourth outfielder. And if, if one of the guys gets hurt, he'll still be able to take over. I know he was barely over replacement level last year or maybe below it, but I wouldn't count on that again. And they have essentially, a you know, an infield full of capable uh, big leaguers now. So I would think rough guess, maybe like 14 wins from the position players outside of him, maybe 13, let's say 13 and nine from Trout, something like that. So four. Okay. This is like a subtle roundabout way of us getting your win prediction. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is there anything like every year Trout has been a little bit different and wonderful in a slightly different way? And sometimes he's working on a specific weakness like his arm or hitting high fastballs or sometimes he's just being he's, he's just uh, producing in a slightly different way, whether it's more patience or more strikeouts or more power or whatever. Do you have any sense of what the inevitable nine or ten win or whatever trout season this year will look like? Is there anything that he has mentioned working on or wanting to do more or less? Yeah, he's mentioned uh, wanting to steal more bases, but he mm-hmm. stole 30 last year. And um, I would be kind of surprised if that went up by a significant number. Uh, I think he said he wanted 40. Um, I think that the thing to monitor, and I'm sure Jeff is, has his eye on this, is, is the is the first pitch stuff and how he approaches them, uh, mm-hmm. specifically first pitch fastballs. It's just that you know he came, when he came up uh, in 2011, he he essentially swung at nothing the first pitch, and, it, and pitchers realized it. And then it's been like an ongoing you know five year back and forth between uh, even within series where he he will not swing at any for a while, and then they'll start throwing in you know essentially uh pipe shots and then he and then he'll swing at one and then they'll start moving him around and then it's back and forth it feels like um and so i think that that's always something to monitor because uh, there are some people who observed him who think you know he could even be better if he just pounced on some of the fastballs that he got first pitch so uh i, I guess that would probably be the biggest thing <laughs> right. imagine being the guy in the corner just like let's make mike trout better never mind the rest <laughs> of these people <laughs> what about albert pujols is his Wanting to be back by opening day, realistic? Do you think? Yeah, he'll be back. Uh, he's gonna play. He's uh, he's going to. I'm sure he'll be the designated hitter for most of the games this season. The one thing to monitor is that uh, the Angels open in Oakland. So Albert likes to. Uh, he he prefers to be able when he's a designated hitter. He wants to hit. He wants there to be an indoor batting cage near the field. Uh, and Oakland does not have one. Uh, Oakland's batting cage, I believe, is on the uh, is on the home team side mm. uh, of their stadium. 
So I think that that will that could potentially cause some problems because and he might have to play first base, which he might not be fit for. So if he doesn't play opening day, I think he'll be playing you know that week at least. But I don't expect him to play very much first base at all uh, this season, especially since the Angels have now a pretty good defender at first in Valbuena. So yeah, I mean I think early April he'll be playing in games. I would expect. Mm-hmm. Moving on to basically the Angels' second best, maybe second best player i guess it depends but cole calhoun last year had a a fascinating year in that he walked a lot more than ever and he struck out less than ever and he hit the ball harder than ever and his numbers were the same as ever for the most part what was that what was there an evolution last year in cole calhoun that kind of got lost and maybe the numbers not quite working out like they should have or what what's his current status in terms of where he is as a an everyday player. I think he's pretty much exactly what you described him as in terms of the second best position player and uh, and still generally underrated across, uh, you know, I guess casual fanhood, um, whereas, you know, people within the game value him very highly. I mean, I think that the Angels receive a ton of interest in him, I could, I could say. As far as what he did last year to improve, to, to get the on-base percentage up 40 points, I think he was disappointed in himself in 2015 and in the second half. He fell kind of into bad habits about about essentially swinging at pitches outside of the zone. And he essentially got better. He told himself that it was important for him to get better at that, and he did. And uh, I think that's more of the hitter that he is. I don't think he's a 310 guy, which is around where he was in the previous year. So I think that I would expect him to be that, that type of hitter going forward. I think the defense fell a little bit, according to scouts and the metrics last year, and I think that's also more in line with who he is. I think that 2015 was a, you know, it's not that he's a bad defender, but I think that was a bit of an aberration here. Mm-hmm. Calhoun obviously was one of the players who was super underrated, and no one really, at least outside of the industry, people didn't really see him coming. To, to what extent do you think that's because he's redheaded? Uh, I think it's because he's short. <laughs> okay. I think it's almost entirely because he's short. He's like, you know, five foot eight, five foot seven. so uh, that's, yeah, I think it's because of that. How do Billy Epler and Mike Sosha get along from what you can tell? And Mike Sosha is under contract for two more seasons, including this one. Is there any talk at this point about what's going to happen after that? Or is he going to want to go into next year with some sort of extension? Or is he ready to retire or move on? How, how do things stand there? Yeah, okay. So uh, their relationship, they both say, is, uh, is wonderful. Uh, Billy Epler has called uh, Mike Sosha an information savant, and I asked him about that last week, if that remained true, because he said that at the start of last season, he said, you wouldn't believe how much information this man craves. Uh, so, yes, their relationship is great, they say. Mm-hmm. As far as Sosha's future, I, that question hasn't been posed yet this spring. I think maybe that's something for mid-season-ish. It, it does set up an interesting, you know, he's making a lot of money. And uh, that, of course, is part of the consideration in him retaining this job for as long as he has, right? I mean, this is going to be his 18th season. I think he was hired around the same month as Bill Belichick. But when his contract expires and he's no longer making $6 million a season, maybe the calculus becomes different. Maybe he's no longer uh, as important to be wrote back. I don't know. You know, it's it's unclear. But I would guess that after, you know, he's going to be finishing his 19th season. And uh, maybe they move in a different direction. Maybe they don't. You know, it's uh, clearly the owner of the Angels loves Mike Sosha. He came in a year and a half after they won the World Series. The owner did and uh, was was enthralled by the fact that this guy was in his, you know, in his second season, third season and won a World Series. And the players loved him and he played small ball and did more with less and all those things. And that uh, infatuation has, has kind of reigned you know, for the last decade and a half. So I, I, it's hard to say that this is going to change, and it's essentially you know one man's choice, right? I and mean, it's so it's hard to predict what this man is going to going to do in a in a year and a half, two years from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned Moreno. The Angels haven't been big spenders really in the last couple of years because they were big spenders and it didn't go so well. They are now almost out from under those mistakes. So this is the last year with Hamilton on the books and then CJ Wilson retired and Jared Weaver's gone and Houston Street might be coming off the books after this season. So we're getting to the point where the Angels could be spenders again if they want to. Do you expect them to try to put together a winner around Mike Trout by importing players or do you think that they were so burned by how it went with Pujols and Hamilton that they'd be hesitant to make that kind of commitment again and of course it's a different front office too yeah I think that they could they could definitely um reinvest essentially Hamilton's money into another big ticket piece in the offseason I would not be surprised if that happens um you know the 2018 Angels I know I've kind of been uh pretty critical of their long-term future in the past but with the moves they made this offseason and I guess with uh, some reconsideration it, it seems like they could be pretty good in 2018 if things break right for them because you know they're essentially going to have the same team that they have this year 
but with uh, Andrew Heaney and, and another starter, Nick Tropiano, back from Tommy John surgery. Of course, we can't necessarily count on those guys, but I mean, they're going to be almost two years removed from Tommy John. You would think that maybe at least one of them will be a, will be a force again, or will be at least able to pitch. And so when you have that kind of stable of young pitching and still Garrett Richards under contract, then it sort of enables you to, to go big with one other signing and maybe upgrade it at a position Maybe whether that be second or left field, you know, but all moves that they made at those positions are one year deals, right? Third base, second base, left field. It's all a one year commitment uh, that, that Billy Epler went out and got to four players at those three positions. So uh, I could easily see them, you know, going for something. I, I haven't really looked forward to see like, OK, what what would that 20 million dollar player year be in a year from now? But that would mm-hmm. that would make sense. I know that you know Josh Hamilton's contract is obviously still a huge impediment to the organization right now, and yeah. that'll be gone. So the Angels acquired a bunch of pretty affordable depth this offseason to kind of give Trout a better support system. Let's not beat around the bush. But what they don't have is a proven starting catcher, and they made what is, in that sense, a curious, not bad, but certainly curious trade when they exchanged Jet Bandy for an older version of kind of. Jet Bandy, I guess. So what do they see in Martin Maldonado and I guess sort of Carlos Perez, who's coming off a miserable Jan Gomesian kind of season? Uh, who Who is sort of the, the starter here and, and why? what is it that they like about Maldonado so much more than Bandy? They like uh, Mar- Martin Maldonado is going to be the starter, uh, but I think Perez is going to th- probably catch 60 or 70 games. Uh, the field staff, like Socha and his crew, love Carlos Perez. They think he's an incredible defender. They think he's great at blocking pitches. Uh, Martin Maldonado, a lot of people say, has the best arm of any catcher in the sport. So there's that going for him. He also is a pretty good framer. Essentially, there was a cut one time, like four years ago, when he was backing up Jonathan Lucroy, where Lucroy got hurt. I forget what the injury was, but Maldonado played like, you know, he played like an everyday catcher for like a month or two. And uh, he did really well. And the manager of the Brewers at that time was Ron Renicky. And uh, Ron Renicky is now on the Angels staff. And he, you know, provided very strong recommendations about Martin Maldonado uh, to the Angels from that time based on his, you know, predicting his ability to be an everyday catcher. So uh, I guess that's what I would say. Uh, you know, obviously the offensive numbers don't look great, uh, and I'm not really sure what to expect from that, but I think he's going to be pretty good defensively. And as we know, Mike Socha uh, loves his catchers to be great defensively, and he's he's definitely going to be that. So I think that uh, I think their offense at the other positions, if, if the things if the things break the way they they expect them to, they're they should have seven or eight pretty good offensive positions, right? The, the second worst position will be second base, probably where Danny Espinosa. Mm-hmm. He's going to play and he, he can still hit home runs at least. So uh, I guess if you have one, you know, 600 OPS spot, it's not the it's not the worst thing is the thought. All right. Want to give us your win total prediction? Yeah, I'll go with um, I have a, a number and, a, and a, an explanation. Uh, I'll go with 81. I don't think it's going to be 81. I think it's either going to be like five above that or five below that based on if they're starting pitching studies healthy. But uh, because I don't know if it will, I'm just going to go in the middle between those two <laughs> okay <laughs> all right well you can find pedro on twitter at pedro mora you can hear him on sports writers blues which is a great podcast even if you're not a angels or dodgers fan just listen to pedro when he disagrees with andy because he's always right and we appreciate your coming on thanks pedro thank you guys for having me thank you all right we'll be right back with nick Bacoro to talk about the diamondbacks oh you had better disguise all that appears of Pray for love from the heavens above. Lead in the ashes below. All right, so we are joined now by Nick Picoro, Diamondbacks beat writer for AZ Central Sports. We are going to talk, unsurprisingly enough, about the Diamondbacks. Hi, Nick. Hi, Ben. Hi, Jeff. Hello. So when we talked to Pedro earlier in this episode, we were asking him about the Angels rotation, which has a bunch of question marks, and they are off to not such a great start. But as you wrote recently, the Diamondbacks rotation, which also has some question marks, but also has the potential to be one of the best rotations in baseball is off to a really good start. So can you give us an update on what you've seen so far? Yeah, um, I think that they're a really weird group, right? I mean, there's not very many rotations in baseball that have that kind of upside. And then there's not that many rotations in baseball that have so much improving left to do. 
or at least bouncing back to do from last year. Uh, Taiwan Walker has been really impressive so far. Uh, five shutout innings. Patrick Corbin's looked pretty good. Uh, you know, fastball in the mid-90s. Archie Bradley and uh, Braden Shipley have bounced back from um, kind of rough first outings to, to throw well. Um, Zach Greinke has looked okay. But probably the most impressive uh, has been Shelby Miller, who uh, in a outing against the Cubs last week uh, was hitting 99 miles an hour and 97 routinely and was just dominant. He seems to be in a really good place uh, mentally as well which I think was an issue for him last year. His spring just really got off to such a bad start. He just, it wasn't coming out right. He was making mechanical adjustments, trying to, to you know, just searching for anything and, and never really found it. And then, you know, as everyone knows, you know, kind of everything that could have gone wrong during the season went wrong. Um, but, you know, this year he just, it seems like he's just in a much better place. He's really confident. I, I, I think he's, uh, I think he's eager to get started and, and ready to, to put last year behind him. Do you think that last year that there was so much uh, animosity is too strong of a word, but there was so much criticism of the front office in Arizona that when the season went off the rails, I think people assumed it was fitting, sort of leaving out that A.J. Pollock got hurt and missed almost <laughs> the entire season before the season started, being one of the best players in, in the league. <laughs> There are. I knew that your first boys. question had to involve AJ Pollock. <laughs> I mean, it can't not, right? Uh, but the the team is poised to do better this year with a fairly similar looking roster. Do you do you think that maybe too much is made of how bad the Diamondbacks were last year, or do you think that situation was more I don't know organizationally fitting? Well, I don't know. I I, I do think probably a little bit too much was made of it. Um, I I think. Uh, you know, you can kind of look at most of their moves individually that that the last regime did, and they really weren't that terrible. And and a lot of them made some sense. I mean, they did wind up flipping Didi Gregorius for Robbie Ray in a, in a deal that made some sense. They you know traded Mark Trumbo for you know Wellington Castillo in a deal that made some sense. I mean, there there were things that they did that you know logically held some. Yeah, I don't know. They they were all right, I think. But you know, I, I I think that the just the package that they gave up in the Shelby Miller trade was was bad enough. Uh, at least it appears bad enough right now uh, that it was able to undo you know anything that that they might have done right uh, in the in the preceding uh, months. So. Uh, I don't know. I I don't think that they were probably ever a 93 lost true talent team, right? I mean, I I think it's just kind of logical that they'll that they'll be far better this year. Yeah, I, I, I it's just hard to get past that that Shelby Miller trade. So, what has it been like to cover this team this winter as it overhauls itself really quickly and basically turned into the Red Sox front office wise, or a mix of the Red Sox and the Pirates, and suddenly they're talking like every other progressive front office in baseball talks, whereas you've been covering Kevin Towers and Dave Stewart and people who talked unlike every other front office in baseball. So how, what have you observed just how much is possible when you're talking about taking maybe one of the laggards and trying to modernize it over the course of one winter? Yeah, it's been different. I mean, I asked Tori Lovello about where he might hit Paul Goldschmidt and uh, asked if the number two spot was a possibility, and he immediately, you know, was aware of the analytics of the importance of the number two spot. Talking to their uh, assistant GM Jared Porter at one point during the off season about a, a pitcher that they got named Sam Lewis uh, in exchange for Peter O'Brien, and he was talking about the, you know, the metrics that the club had on him and how that played a role in in uh, them identifying him. Uh, you know, Mike Fitzgerald is, is their new, uh, analytics guy. Uh, and, you know, he, conversations with him have, have been interesting. Um, it's, it's definitely a, a different, uh, a different feel around here. It's, it's been, uh, it's, it's been different. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't want to be too critical of the previous regimes or anything. I, I don't, you know, I don't think that they were really up to speed though. I don't, I don't think that that's any, any secret. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been fun listening to these guys kind of talk about putting their, you know, putting their stamp on things, um, you know, everything from, you know, I mean, I, I wrote a story earlier in the spring about how they envision their, their catchers uh, being a big part of, of things. Um, and, you know, just the, the analytics that they seem to be using, or, or at least they're sort of hinting at using. It's, it's different. It, it doesn't feel like, like in the past, there was always like lip service, I think, to analytics. And now they're like being secretive, because I actually think that there is something to it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, h- how much house cleaning did they do? We know about the people at the top are imported from other organizations, but scouts and player development people, did they bring in all of their own recruits or is a lot of the bones of the old organization still there? I think a little bit of a little bit of both. You know, they they brought in, you know, Mike Hazen brought in Amiel Sade and Jared Porter underneath him as assistant GMs and Mike Fitzgerald as the analytics director. Uh, they brought in a new international head for the scouting department there. Um, they brought in a handful of of scouts or special assistants um, but really, they didn't part ways with too many people unless those people maybe wanted to leave on their own was was the sense that I got. I, I think that they'll probably end up, you know, kind of using this year to sort of evaluate and get to know them um, and kind of see where everybody fits. There has been, um, you know, a little bit of uh, maybe restructuring of of roles for some people in the front office. Um, oh, and I didn't mention that they brought in, you know, Dan Heron and Burke Badenhop as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there, there's been a lot of additions. I don't feel like there have been too many uh, subtractions though. You uh, you had meant, talked about the importance of the catchers going forward for this team. They brought in Chris Iannetta. They brought in maybe more importantly, Jeff Mathis. But I have to know, I'm just going to read down this list. Slugging percentage. This is not important. Catcher slugging percentage last year, embarrassingly low playing time minimum. Gary Sanchez was first, 657. Then Evan Gaddis, 508. Jonathan Lucroy, 500. Wilson Ramos, 496. Chris Herman, 493. Chris Herman, before last year, let's see if I can get this page to load. He slugged to 272. His career slugging percentage is also terrible. He was 28 years old. What what happened? What was Chris Herman last year? And does he, uh, in the, the least dismissive way possible, th- does he matter for the picture at all? I don't know how much he's going to matter behind the plate. I mean, I, I think he's very much a, a third catcher, uh, at least from what I can gather from what, what scouts think of him and and uh, from what the front office seems to think of him, but I don't have a great feel, uh, admittedly, for for what this organization thinks at, at this point of him. But um, you know, he was an interesting guy. I mean, he was someone. He was a a former Dave Stewart client. Um, Stu believed in him, thought he could hit, uh, thought he just needed an opportunity. And uh, you know, I know it was not that many at bats, but it was pretty impressive. I mean, it was it was it it wasn't just like balls, you know, sneaking through and and uh, bloops falling in the outfit. I mean, there was there was something to his his offensive approach last year too it was it was pretty good to see you know I don't know he he talked about confidence he didn't talk about you know any major like swing changes or reinventions of himself or anything he just talked about you know believing in himself for the first time at the big league level uh and kind of writing that so I don't know I'm I'm interested to see how he does and and especially if he can you know get his defensive side of things up to speed and, and kind of become a you know a, a real viable option there you know a left-handed hitting catcher is, uh, is not a unicorn but there aren't that many of them and your essay in the baseball perspectives annual was largely about those reinventions and swing changes and you talked about some players who have done that with the diamondbacks over the past few years is there anyone new this year that you're watching out for who's sort of remodeled himself over the winter it's actually I'm glad you asked that because I was just talking with uh, with Pollock this morning and asked him who looks good and, and he mentioned that Chris Owings has has made some changes to his swing and, and he, I didn't get a chance to talk to Chris about it or really go into depth with AJ about it but that's a topic that uh you know I'm kind of obsessed with the last couple of years <laughs> I think it's like just infinitely fascinating I, I think I first picked up on it when Mark Trumbo started talking to me about JD Martinez and I, and I kind of just down that hole. And I've just been really intrigued by the amount of guys that have been able to really change their careers around. Um, the Dynamics have another guy on their on their roster now that in Daniel Descalzo, who did the same things uh, a year ago. So I don't think he really counts since he already did it in Colorado. But, you know, it seems like they have a pretty progressive group of hitters in that regard with with Pollock and Lamb. And, and uh, I know Ahmed is a, is a believer in a lot of that stuff. Uh, Owings, I, I think Goldschmidt, you know, at least he doesn't talk a ton about it. With us, I, I think he certainly does a lot of the things that that those you know modern hitting coaches believe in. So yeah, it's it's an interesting group of guys, and I'm I'm kind of curious to see uh, you know if if there actually is something to it with Owings. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned a few of those players because I was going to ask you have a this middle infield situation where you have Nick Ahmed, great defender, Chris Owings, very interesting young defender, Brandon Drury, and Cattell Marte, who didn't have a very good last season, but they traded for him on purpose, so clearly he's going to play. How is this 
supposed to sort out? Is is the team rooting for one particular outcome, or is it just exciting to have sort of four talented players vying for two, maybe three spots? Again, kind of like I said before, I don't have a great feel yet for what these guys are, are thinking. My sense is that Marte is more likely to start in the minors, and that shortstop could be a sort of situation where Ahmed plays more against left-handers, uh, maybe enters games defensively if if need be, um, and Owings gets starts against right-handers. And I think Owings could also find his way into the lineup from time to time on an outfield corner, you know, maybe right field in place of David Peralta when there's a, a tough left-hander on the mound. But, you know, I think Drury is locked in pretty much as the everyday second baseman at this point. There, there doesn't even seem to be much like debate about that. They haven't gone out of their way to get other people uh, playing time at second. It, it just sounds like that's that's his position and, and that's uh, that's how things are going to go, at least for the beginning here. And what about Yasmani Tomas? He sort of developed a reputation early on as a bust or a big mistake, and then he improved last year while still maybe not being able to play defense. What's the outlook for him this season? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, he certainly did take some huge steps forward offensively in the second half last year. It seemed like the approach got better occasionally. I still think he lacks some consistency in that from, you know, day to day, even at bat to at bat. Um, it seems like there's sometimes you see him and, and you you think he has a real idea of what he's doing up there. And then the very next at bat, he's swinging at three straight sliders down and away. But I think that, I don't know. I mean, I, I imagine they would have liked to have traded him if they could have in the offseason. But, you know, as the market was you know so flooded with guys kind of like him on the free agent market that got very much less than the, uh, gosh, I don't remember how much exactly he's owed remaining on that $68 million contract. But certainly his, his value is a lot less than what he's owed at this point. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're sort of hoping for him to continue to hit the way that he did in the second half and maybe see if a market develops and, uh, you know, there's some interest. In, maybe there's an injury somewhere and, and something opens up. Um, I, I think he's going to end up being a contract that's going to be hard to carry for them going forward, you know, when you've got Granky making as much as he's making and then, uh, you know, try, them trying to figure out long-term what they're going to do with, with Pollock and Corbin and Miller and Goldschmidt. In retrospect, looking at the numbers, I don't quite understand why the hype got to where it was, but I seem to recall that about a year ago, there was a lot being made of Socrates Brito to the point where I even wrote about Socrates Brito as maybe like the next underrated Diamondbacks outfielder, which has been a uh, sort of a trend they've had. And Pollock was an underrated Diamondbacks outfielder. He didn't play last year very much. David Peralta was an underrated Diamondbacks outfielder. He was hurt and he didn't play very well last year. And Socrates Brito was an seemingly underrated Diamondbacks outfielder who then subsequently didn't do anything in the majors and he had sort of an average year in the minors. Is it worth remembering that hype and his name or was maybe that more of a previous administration sort of player man Socrates Brito probably goes back four administrations at, <laughs> at this point I think he might have been signed under Josh Burns it's not very many uh not very many teams can say that that they have players that go back that far <laughs> they're not even that old <laughs> but no I think he's I think 24 he's, I know but he, I mean, didn't he sign at 16 eight years ago yeah. he might have Anyway, he's he he. I think he's still an interesting player. I mean, he maybe isn't a center fielder. Uh, I think I learned that last year about him, or at least you know compared to some of the other options, including you know Owings and and Mitch Haniger. I, I thought that Brito was kind of clearly the the third best there. I think that he you know I, he just he just had it, kind of everything go wrong for him last year. There was injuries. There was you know, kind of some bad timing in terms of when he he got into a bit of a funk in, at the plate, like late in spring training, like the kind of the worst, you know, they, they always say they want to like get hot at the end of spring. And he got hot at the beginning of spring, got himself into some bad habits. The season started and he was just a mess. And then did he foul a ball off his foot and, and break something? Then he tried to play winter ball last year and broke a hamate. So, I mean, he's still young. I, I think he needs to play and just kind of continue to get experience. But I don't, I don't see why he couldn't be, a, you know, another one of those types of guys like you're talking about, maybe more out of the like Gerardo Parra mold of, of a, you know, potentially dominant defender on a corner outfield who also hits a little. 
I had uh, debates, I remember this time last spring with scouts, you know, who's going to be, you know, the more valuable player, uh, you know, who would produce more war, Socrates Brito or Yasmani Tomas. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny looking back at it now. I mean, nobody, nobody talks about that right now, but I don't think much has changed in terms of, you know, what his ceiling could still be. So Robbie Ray had great strikeout rates, but also a high home run rate and a pretty high walk rate and big disagreement between his ERA and FIP, that kind of thing. So are you closer to the actual stats or the defense independent stats? Uh, I mean, we're somewhere in between. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, he's he's so interesting because he I mean, he he just possesses something that everybody wants. And that's that's a fastball that you can throw by guys even when they know it's coming. It's fun to watch. Uh, it's also frustrating to watch because he, you know, in the in the time that he's been here, hasn't really improved too much with his fastball command. Um, he remains pretty inefficient with his pitches, and he hasn't really developed, you know, a consistent third pitch. So, I don't know. I mean, I I uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he if he cuts, you know, a run off his ERA. Uh, but I also wouldn't be surprised if he continues to struggle to get into the sixth inning of his starts. And I mean, it's probably it, it's stupid, I know, but it's it's probably on my mind that he you know, went out and walked three guys in, in the first inning of his first spring start. Like, it just kind of seems like it's, you know, the same old issues for Robbie. So we'll see. I, I'm 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 really intrigued. I don't know that there's a guy in the rotation with, with more upside. So I'm definitely curious to see how it plays out. I'll say uh, last year, Yasmani Tomas had the uh, the higher war than Socrates Brito by posting a war of negative 0.1. Uh, Socrates Brito finished at negative 0.2. However, Brito has the career lead at plus 0.2 anyway <laughs> moving on from that i was just maybe this is more of a an observation than a question but an observation that i think begs for an answer looking at the picture i think the diamondbacks most reliable reliever is fernando rodney full stop <laughs> <laughs> um i guess i I, w- I would like to say Jake Barrett, but he's also got shoulder problems this spring and has yet to get off a mound, to my knowledge. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's the one impediment to me really buying them as contenders. Uh, although at the same time, I know how quickly bullpens can be remade and how fast things can change. Um, they brought in a slew of, uh, you know, those veteran reliever types on minor league deals like Tom Wilhelmson and J.J. Hoover and Brian Mattis, Jorge De La Rosa. Gosh, I'm probably forgetting a few. And, and you know, just kind of hoping that I guess they can catch lightning in a bottle with a couple of them. Uh, Kevin Jepsen is another, just guys that uh, that they're hoping can bounce back. I mean, most of these guys aren't that far removed from being relatively effective big league relievers. And they've got a couple of guys that are sort of interesting in the minor leagues. You know, Jared Miller is a, a lefty who I think threw 18 scoreless innings in the fall league last year and struck out 30. It was just amazing uh, and is, hasn't allowed a run in his first three appearances so far in, in spring. Jimmy Scherfe is another guy that's kind of interesting. I think I remember Ben writing about him when, didn't you write about him at scout school? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's uh, coming along. Uh, had a really good year last year, stumbled a little bit down the stretch in Reno. But, you know, both those guys look like interesting guys. Maybe, you know, all of these veterans are, are kind of a bridge to, to some of the younger relievers that they have in the system. Um, the other thing that I guess is possible uh, that I don't really have a lot of insight on, but they could move a rele- or I'm sorry, a starter or two into a bullpen role. Mm-hmm. Matt Cook is a guy who I would guess would be a candidate for that, who's a really interesting pitcher who throws a lot of strikes and, and seems to have stuff that kind of moves in um, in both directions. He's, you know, not overpowering, but, you know, like I said, throws a lot of strikes and, and just gets outs, you know, and then, you know, will they would they consider moving someone like Corbin or Robbie Ray or Archie Bradley into the bullpen? I would guess that Bradley would be the most likely of those. But I mean, you know, Corbin was also really good down the stretch last year when they moved him into the bullpen. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, they've they've got a lot of interesting arms and, and guys that if you squint, you can kind of see it coming together. But yeah, I mean, Fernando Rodney was their big offseason acquisition to solidify the bullpen. And, mm-hmm. and it's a guy who's going to turn 40 soon and had a six ERA in the second half last year. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to get too into the weeds on one guy in particular, especially the guy whose name you didn't even mention in that answer. But just glancing at it. 
what what was the difference? Andrew Chafin last year had a terrible ERA, but his strikeouts took off. He seemed to miss bats all of a sudden, even though he was kind of a regular reliever the year before, and he had a much lower ERA, but arguably worse number. So what, I guess, a 60-second answer maybe, what what just happened with Andrew Chafin? Uh, I think that he was the only lefty in the bullpen and that uh, he kind of got abused as a result. Um, uh, there was a couple of stretches where he was up or in games, uh, something like 14 out of 15 consecutive days, um, and he wore down and got hurt as a result um he says he feels great he has looked really good so far in spring and yeah that's a, that's another guy that could that could figure into things if he's if he's throwing the way he has in the past uh, stuff wise all right want to give us a win total prediction for this year and you don't have to do it the old kevin towers guarantee way or the <laughs> tony larusa i will be heartbroken if this doesn't happen way you can just... <laughs> or the wasn't there a dave stewart like <laughs> mocking the projections sort of way yes there's well? that way too <laughs> um, uh, do i have i guess i have to huh? um <laughs> I've, I completely blinked that you always ask people to do this, and I didn't think about it at all. Um, 82. Okay. 82. Uh, that's, I was sound pretty convicted on that, right? 82. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Winning team. All right. You can find Nick on Twitter at Nick Picoro. You can read him at azcentral.com. Nick, thanks as always. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already done so include Daniel Hunt, Patrick Green, Mark Rohan, Michael Gates, and Max Twine. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Michael Bauman and I have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up. You can find that on the Ringer MLB feed. We talked to Stephen Goldman about precedents for the Carter Caps and David Price rules. And we also talked to Octavio Hernandez about the WBC. And by the way, big thanks to Dylan Higgins, who is the host of the Field of Streams podcast at Rotographs, which will be starting up again soon, and you should check that out. I have edited every episode of this podcast myself, except for the, I think, three episodes over the years I've missed. I've been hesitant to let anyone else touch it, but Dylan volunteered to help out, and he did help out quite a bit with this episode and will probably be continuing to. So thank you to Dylan. You can find him on Twitter at HigginsFOS. We'll be back with an email show later this week, so keep your questions coming to podcast at fangraphs.com or by messaging us through the Patreon messaging system. We will talk to you soon. Push it over.